0: Brothers and sisters, we need the Lord more than ritualism, more than routine. We need the Lord because if the Lord is not the center of what we do this week, then what we do will be no more than a hunger strike and nothing more than a religious ritual. And so though our time of corporate consecration officially starts tonight, at 9 p.m. As we prepare to hear God's word this morning, let's posture our hearts to hear what I pray will be a guiding word for us as we head into corporate consecration. For this morning's message, our attention will be focused on a single verse of scripture in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. But I want to start reading from verse eleven, second chronicles seven. Fourteen is our focus, but I will begin reading at verse eleven. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord. And in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, Or command the locusts to devour the land Or send pestilence among my people If my people Who are called by my name Humble themselves and pray And seek my face And turn from their wicked ways Then I will hear from heaven And will forgive their sin And heal their land Let's pray together Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, we recognize that we need your help as we engage your word. We recognize that we need the Holy Spirit to convict us of the truth. We need the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. Lord, we need the Spirit's help to make application to our lives. And Father, we also recognize that the word before us this morning is the word upon which we hope to build the entirety of this week. And so, Lord, we need much grace for that. We need your help to affect our hearts this morning, to cause us to truly respond to what you are saying to us in your word this morning and then throughout the remainder of this week. Lord, there are ways that we have in mind in which we need to come before you, but, Lord, you know person by person, and you know fully in this local church exactly how you would have us come before you. And so, Lord, would you help us now as we open your word? Would you give us an endowment this morning, Lord, that we can truly build upon this week? Well, this week is not about endurance. This week is not about mind power. This week is not about personal and self-discipline. Lord, this week is a week that we need your grace. So pour out your grace abundantly upon us and pour out your grace upon us even now as we sit under the instruction of your word. So Father, when you do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Second Chronicles 7.14 is, without a doubt, one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied verses of Scripture in the Old Testament and perhaps in the Bible as a whole. And for this reason, I need to set a context for this verse and clarify some of the important issues before we are able to really consider it as I believe the Lord would have us to do for this week. I'm sure many of you have heard this verse quoted in relation to the many national problems that we have breakdown of family life and the resulting social problems that are all around us, increased immorality, increased poverty, spiraling crime, failing institutions. No doubt some quoted it this past week in the aftermath of the highly publicized invasion of Dr. Rex Major's home. In response to our sea of problems, they say, well, if the church would only humble itself and pray and see God's face and turn from their wicked ways and God will hear from heaven, he will forgive their sins and he will heal our land and all of these problems will go away. But here's the problem with that line of thinking. The promise that God makes in second chronicles 14 that promise was given to the nation of israel and it does not apply to the bahamas and it does not apply to any other nation for that matter in the old testament or under the old covenant the people of israel were unique in the sense that they were god's chosen people they were god's people they were his people and he was their god they were a theocracy and God ruled them through his representative the king and in 2nd chronicles chapter 7 solomon was the king and the background to 2nd chronicles 7 is really in 2nd chronicles chapter 6 where we see solomon built a temple for God a place dedicated for the worship of God And Solomon dedicated that temple in prayer to the Lord. And a major part of Solomon's prayer was that the temple would be a place where people would come, where the people of Israel would be able to pray to God in the midst of various difficulties, and that God would hear and answer their prayers. In his prayer in chapter 6, Solomon actually lays out some specific examples of the kinds of situations the people of Israel might face. And we find that what the Lord did in verses 13 and 14 in Second Chronicles chapter seven, is he actually lists some of the very words that Solomon prayed, and he responds back to Solomon. With those words. If you can just turn back to chapter six in Second Chronicles, and look at verse 26, Second Chronicles, chapter six, starting in verse 26. This is Solomon praying a prayer of dedication for the temple. And he says to God, "When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you." If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is a famine in the land if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness is there, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. So what we see is Second Chronicles seven twelve through fourteen really is God's direct response to that particular part of the prayer that Solomon prayed. I notice that the language could not be clearer. It is very specific to God's Old Testament people and to the Old Testament land that He gave the nation of Israel. That land that He gave them as an inheritance. They were. His people, they were a theocracy that was land inherited, and the prayers that that Solomon prayed and the promises that God made were unique and specific to that geographical piece of land. So that's the reason that we can't apply Second Chronicles seven fourteen to the Bahamas. All the people in the Bahamas, first of all, are not God's people. Not all love God. Not all serve God. And the same is true for the United States. And it's true for every nation on the face of the earth. And I know this may concern some of you. It's also true for the nation of Israel today. That promise does not even apply to the nation of Israel today. It's important to note that even though God did elect the nation of Israel above all the nations of the earth, it was always God's plan to be God of all the nations. It was always God's plan to bring salvation to all peoples, that he would have people from every nation and every tongue and every tribe. Not just one nation. And this really could never be clearer, it could not be clearer than what we see now in the New Testament. For example, here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2, verses 28 through 29. He says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter his praise is not from man but from God so notice how Paul here in the book of Romans is interpreting and explaining who the true Jews are he says the true descendants of Abraham the true people of Israel the true people of God are those not from an outward way but it's a matter of the heart it's not referring to birth or descent but really by the heart by the spirit is by faith again in Romans 9 verses 6 through 8 the apostle Paul restates the same point in clearer and even stronger language he says this beginning in the second part of verse 6 for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Paul's point is that there are two Israels. There's a natural one and there's a spiritual one. And he also says that not every single person who can trace his ethnic descendants to Abraham is a true child of Abraham. And so the same is true of the people of God. The true people of God are those who are part of the spiritual nation of Israel who are children of Abraham by faith and not simply only by birth. So what does this mean? What it means is, it means that the spiritual nation of Israel is comprised of people of all nations. Those who have put faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been justified by God and made to be the people of God. So in the spiritual nation of Israel, the true people of God are both Jews who have been converted and Gentiles who have been converted. you can read more of that if you would like. You can certainly look at Romans chapter 4. That elaborates on it even more. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul talks about how God made these two who were separate to be one people and one nation. Now, I've gone to that great length to explain and make the point that the call and the promise that we find in Second Chronicles 7.14 were exclusive to the Old Testament covenant people of God. At a specific time and in a specific place, there were promises that if they would meet certain conditions, God would hear them and He would bring healing to their land. He would bring forgiveness to them. But today, God has no People that are all located on one geographical piece of land. His people are scattered among the nations of the earth. And we heard this in the first message of the year that they are pilgrims in this earth. They recognize that here we have no continuing city, no lasting city, no permanent dwelling place. We look for one whose maker and builder is God. And so that's why 2nd Chronicles 7:14 cannot be applied to any specific nation today. And so the logical question then is if it doesn't apply to any specific nation today including the nation of Israel, what is the relevance for us this morning? Well, this verse of scripture is relevant us this morning because although it no longer specifically applies to any geographic nation or people it generally applies to God's people the church and here's how it generally applies to God's people today God will hear and bless his people when they turn to him in prayer and repentance That's how it applies. Even though it no longer applies to any nation of people on the earth in terms of geography, it is still a principle and it remains true that God will hear and bless his people when they turn to him in prayer and repentance. 2 Chronicles 7.14 as I said earlier, is not only the text for this morning's message, but it is also the primary scripture upon which we are seeking to build this week of corporate consecration. And so this morning, in our remaining time, I want to try to help us in terms of how we should think about this verse, how we should meditate on this verse, both this morning and during the course of the week. And this morning, I have two encouragements that I want to give us concerning this verse and um, I pray they'll help us to posture our hearts for this week of corporate consecration the first encouragement is this as we read and engage and meditate on this verse number one let's remember who we are let's remember who we are if you have repented of your sins. And you have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You belong to Him. You are a child of God. You are included in the two key words at the beginning of this verse. And those words are my people. If you have come to Christ, if you have trusted Christ, if you know the forgiveness of your sins this morning, you are included in those two words, my people. God makes us His people. When he saves us from a life of sin and rebellion against him and he brings us into his family. We cannot make ourselves God's people. We cannot choose on our own just to say, I'm going to be one of God's people. No, God does that by his own divine initiative. God makes a people. He redeems a people to himself. And we see this foreshadowed in the Old Testament and we see it fulfilled in the New Testament where God redeems a people to Himself. So in Second Chronicles 7.14, God is not speaking to unbelievers. He is speaking to His people who are related to Him through redemption. And so as we consider this verse of Scripture this morning, as we consider this verse of Scripture this week, we must do so as those who have been redeemed through Christ. And we must remember that this is why we're able to do what God is calling us to do. This is the basis upon which we are being called to do these things. Because we are the people of God. And we need to remember this because after calling us His people, This verse goes on to say some pretty hard things to hear, some difficult things to hear. It references our sin and calls us to repentance. And I think if we bear this in mind, if we bear in mind what God calls us, and we bear in mind the issues that God raises, what we see is God's grace is on display in this verse. One sin against the Holy God is sufficient to justify our death. But God in His mercy punished His own Son, laid our sins, the sins of His people upon His Son, and poured out His wrath upon His Son. So that we don't have to bear those sins and pay the price for those sins. And he calls us his people still in the midst of those sins. He doesn't brush them aside and pretend that they're not at times a part of his people's lives. He says, you're my people, but you have these sins and you have to deal with them. And I believe that we will hear this differently, we will engage it differently, if we remember we are the people of God. And again, God's grace is displayed here. Because he would call the filthy clan, he would, he would call people like me and you, his people. So as we ponder this verse this week, let us remember who we are in spite of our sins. In spite of the things that the Lord may bring to our attention this week, we remember if we have been forgiven by God, if we have repented of a life of sin and turned away from a life of sin, let us remember that as God brings conviction to us, because even though we have repented of sin and we have turned away from sin as a lifestyle, there's still indwelling sin in us. We have not yet been set free from the presence of sin. Sin is still around us. And indeed within us. But as we remember this, that we are the blood-bought people of God, we are the blood-washed people of God, then we can engage this without fear, without trepidation, other than the fear of the Lord. My second encouragement for us as we engage this verse this week is this. Let us ponder what God says. First, Let's remember who we are. And second, let's ponder what God says. And by ponder I mean, let's not just gloss over this verse. And it's so easy to do because we've heard it so much. It's so easy to do because we can quote it, most of us, from memory. But let us take time to consider it. Let us take time to think about it and to meditate a- about it in terms of what does it mean for me? What does it mean for us as a local church God is saying so much in this little verse but we will miss it if we don't take the time to slow down and ponder what he's saying to us in this verse God calls his people to four specific acts of obedience and then he makes a threefold promise to them if they obey he promises that he would hear he would forgive and he would heal. Now this morning, I'm not even attempting to be exhaustive in what the Lord is saying to us in this particular verse, but I want to try to be representative to help us to ponder what God is saying, to spark our hearts as it were, to just consider, God, what are you, what are you, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to us as a church? First of all, notice the first act of obedience to which we are called. God calls his people, he calls us to humble ourselves. I think it's instructive to us this morning that the first call that God gives us is to humble ourselves. And when you come right down to it, the root cause of sin is pride. It is because of pride that we disobey God, when we believe that we know better than he Does It is because of pride that we desire what God forbids and hate what God commands. And in the end, we disobey because of pride. It is because of pride that we look down upon others and mistreat others and think of ourselves more highly than we should. It is because of pride that we sometimes engage in high-handed sin and premeditated sin and presume upon the grace of God. You know, I can't give enough illustrations this morning that would resonate with every single one of us seated in this room. But here's what I know. For every single one of us this morning, the question is not, do I have pride in my life? That's not the question. The question for every one of us this morning is where do I have pride in my life and how much? where do I have pride in my life and how much a number of years ago I heard a pastor friend say he said pride is like an onion he said when you lift when you take off one layer when you peel back one layer there's another one underneath it to be peeled away And we need the Spirit's help this morning. We need the Spirit's help to help us to see pride in our lives because oftentimes we're blind to pride. Oftentimes we are indifferent to our pride. Oftentimes we would relegate our pride to our personalities. Well, I'm just that way. People in my family are that way. We're all that way. And in addition to the spirit's help, we need the help of others. We need the eyes of others. We need the observation of others. And those observations are a gift to us when they can help us to see in areas where we just, for whatever reason, aren't seeing. I remember a number of years ago, some of you may remember Danny Jones, when he was caring for our church within the structure of Sovereign Grace. And he was meeting with me and David and Lyndon. Both David and Lyndon at the time were a part of the eldership. And I was there and he just began to ask them about me in my presence. One of the questions he asked them, he said, how do you rate Cedric in the area of pride? And they weren't sure how to respond. he said, well, okay, scale from... One to ten, ten being humble, and, and one being uh, prideful, how do you rate him? And I sat there, and they both rated me a three. I dismissed it. I just said, <laughs> I mean, I know I'm not a three. I, I, I'm not a ten, but certainly not a three. And I just dismissed what they said. I mean, I wasn't hearing anything else that they said, and I thought, you know, they were just... I do not know what they were looking at. I thought I was a very humble person. But later, maybe the next day or so, the Lord just kind of shook me out of the blindness that I was in and really just helped me to see that the mere fact that I dismissed their observation was an expression of my pride that was an expression of my pride the fact that I just dismissed it, I didn't ask them any questions to say, why do you say that? give me some examples of that? none of that, I just dismissed it and so they served me in and and even in that moment though I could not know exactly what they had in mind I was sensitized to the fact that they saw something that caused them to say to me to my face you're 3 out of 10 and that was a gift to me it was a gift to me because they were willing to speak the truth to me and it reminded me that I can be so blind to what others clearly see they weren't going to sit there and lie to me why would they do that Or try to embarrass me. But that was a gift to me. And by the grace of God, today, I know I'm still not a 10, but I don't believe that they would say I'm still a 3. They would probably say, You're (laughs) 4. Lyndon would probably give me 8 or 9, something (laughs) like that. Um, that's just the way those, those guys are. You know, I've always said, listen, if you need a recommendation of anything, go to Lyndon. I mean, he sees what nobody else sees. Um, but no, I mean, there was a gift to me. It's helped me, and by the God I've made progress. By the grace of God I've made progress. Whatever, to, whatever degree that progress is, I have made progress. And the biggest progress is just being aware that I have more pride than I'm aware of. And left to myself, I would not have seen it. And left to myself, I will not see it. So in addition to praying and asking the Holy Spirit to help us to to see pride in our lives and to deal with pride in our lives, I encourage us, let us ask others who are close to us about observations they may have for us where they might see pride in our lives. Husbands, let's ask our wives. Wives, let us ask. Not us, but you ask us, your husbands. Parents, ask children. Children, ask parents. And then let's listen and let's not try to defend. And if you feel that an observation is unwarranted, if you feel that it is inaccurate, I encourage you, rather than defend right away or even question, receive it bring it before the Lord this week and then maybe you may need to follow it up at another time or you may just need to thank that person for sharing that observation the second action to which we are called by the Lord is to pray and here again it is fitting that after being called to humble ourselves we are called to pray and the reason is that oftentimes prayerlessness is an expression of pride and self-dependence. You see, when we don't pray, what we're silently saying is, God, I don't need you. I can do this by myself. And when we consider this call to pray, let us consider the personal and corporate aspects of our prayer lives and let's be honest with the Lord let us be honest with the Lord concerning this important aspect of the Christian life this call to pray and let us ask the Lord to help us to be a people of prayer to to be marked by prayer and to grow in faith as we pray I was encouraged as I thought about this call to pray by the words from James as he concluded his letter in chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. He writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit here in these verses James gives us great encouragements to pray personally to pray with others calling the elders to pray for us And he reminds us that we can pray like Elijah because Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So brothers and sisters, as we engage this week, let us ponder and obey this call to pray. And the third act of obedience which God calls us to is to seek his face. And this naturally flows from prayer. While it does not mean that we cannot ask God for anything, we cannot make petitions to the Lord, it doesn't mean that at all. We can do that. We ought to do that. He calls us to do that. What is clear, though, is that we are primarily seeking His face this week, not His hands. We are seeking His face and not His hands. John Piper makes the point that the term "see God's face means to seek His presence in the Uh, Hebraic idiom that it generally means that seek his face means to seek his presence and I think what is clear as we consider this is that it will take time it implies that it is not automatic when we talk about going to seek something the implication is not that we are going to just go there and pick it up and it's all done No, we are going after it and we're just not sure, we're not just certain about that approach to finding whatever it is we're seeking. There's this sense of, of time. And God sometimes is a God who hides himself. He's a God who sometimes does not make himself and his presence very evident to us because he desires that we would seek him. And I know, I I, I know representatively from the lives of some of you that there are many of us, there are many needs represented in our lives personally and in our families and there are needs in our local church. And these needs are worthy of seeking the Lord. One of the things the Lord has really graciously checked me on over the years is really helped me to see sometimes how I would be approaching what would be considered grave and major and serious matters in a routine and a typical way. Brothers and sisters, there are some things that call us to seek the Lord. Yes, there's a sense we're seeking His presence, but also there's a sense we're seeking to know His will. We're seeking to do His will. of you young people who are getting ready to graduate and thinking about your future and thinking about what you want to give yourself to. This would be a great week to carve out some time and say, God, I want to seek you concerning this. I, I, I want to seek your face. I want your approval. I want you to lead me. I want you to direct me in this. We're going to gather on Wednesday night and we are going to have an extended time of singing more than the other nights during the week. And the whole idea would just be to come together and to really be seeking the Lord. Just listening as we sing and just, just seeking His presence, but also seeking His will and asking for His guidance. And the fourth and final action to which we are called as God's people in this verse, is to turn from our wicked ways. He calls us to turn from our wicked ways. And this is quite shocking. It tells us, again, that even as God's people, we have wicked ways that we need to turn away from. Let me ask you, what comes to your mind when you think of this term wicked ways well I know for some people what comes to mind is major major sin like adultery and fornication but you know every sin every sin before a holy God is wickedness. Every sin before a holy God is wickedness. It's quite interesting when we consider in Proverbs chapter 6, it says the six things the Lord hates. Some of the weighty things that we think about don't make the list. Doesn't mean he doesn't hate those other things, but They don't make that list in that passage. I wonder if sins like anger and selfishness and gossip and backbiting and complaining come to mind when you think of wicked ways. I wonder if unthankfulness and ingratitude comes to mind. Children who feel entitled to what their parents do that it doesn't cross their minds to express gratitude husbands who feel entitled to what their wives do and vice versa and so they are ungrateful Jerry Bridges calls these sins that we would not put in the category of wicked he calls them respectable sins. Turn with me for a moment, try to keep your place at Second Chronicles um, 7, but turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and I want us to consider some of the sins that may not come to mind when we think about wicked ways. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 17. The Apostle Paul takes the first three chapters of this letter and he reminds believers of the great work of salvation that God has worked in them. And then, starting in chapter 4, he begins to lay out for them the life to which they are called in light of that salvation, in view of that salvation, because of that salvation, and this is what he says in verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus what he's saying is you've been taught to put off your old self this is turning from our wicked ways to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And you can go on and also read what he says in chapter 5 as well. This week, let us ponder these words. Let us ponder what it is means for us individually to turn from sin, to turn from our wicked ways, to turn from sins with which we have become cozy and comfortable. And here let me say that for us, one of the, one of the temptations for us, those of us who believe in the eternal security of those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ, One of the traps that we can sometimes fall in is to believe that because we have been saved and we we will always be saved, then we dabble in sin. And we don't take sin seriously. We don't fight sin as we ought to fight sin. We have in the back of our minds that it really doesn't matter so much. Or we do what some people say, you know, I'm going to lay my salvation down, deal with you, and then I will pick it up again. I'm sure you've heard people say that. And it's that kind of smugness, it is that kind of high-handedness that we need to watch and be so careful with. This doctrine of eternal security is a precious doctrine. It is a doctrine for comfort. It is not a doctrine for smugness. It is not a doctrine to be cozy with sin and to play with sin. And when we do that, we lose the comfort of the doctrine. We cannot have comfort in believing that we belong to Christ when we act as those who do not. One of the most scariest verses in Scripture is found in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus is concluding it, In Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, here's what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are scary words, brothers and sisters. And we get no comfort when we see how close we can go to the line and we play the game because I'm saved. It really doesn't matter. I'm secure. I'll just do this for the moment and then I'll be okay. No, we could. You could find yourself if that is your attitude among these people here that Jesus refers to in Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three. So, as we consider Second Chronicles seven, if you would turn back there with me now, and verse fourteen, the four action words in it: they are humble, pray, seek and turn humble pray seek and turn what is this this is nothing short of a call to prayer and repentance this is a call to prayer and to repentance And since these words are directed to God's people, what they do is they remind us that repentance is not something that is relegated to that moment some years ago when I came to Christ. Repentance is not just relegated to that prayer I prayed when I asked the Lord to save me. No, repentance is something that is ongoing in the lives of believers. Repentance, the Christian life, is a repenting life. Not for us to be saved again, but that we may grow in sanctification, that we may become less sinful and we may become more Christlike. Now after calling us to repent and to pray, notice that the Lord makes a promise. He promises to hear. He promises to here is people's prayer to forgive his people's sin and to heal his people's land. And again, these words were initially directed to the nation of Israel. But for God's people today, because we don't have some physical land that the Lord is going to drive out the locusts from and he's going to remove um, the enemies from, what we, what we need to be doing as New Testament people is we need to be thinking about the land of our lives Let us think about the land of our local church. Even, I would say, let us think about the land of our families. The Lord is essentially promising restoration if we would humble ourselves and seek His face and turn from our wicked ways. And if we repent, God will bless us. God will bless us. If we repent, God will bless us. And so let us do business this week. And here, here's, here's the minimum blessing that we can expect from God. We can expect at the end of this week to be nearer to God. The psalmist says that the presence of the Lord is our good. Seeking his presence, being near to him, that is our good. We can expect the blessing of having grown and made progress in sanctification 2nd Chronicles 7 verse 14 is one of those verses in the Old Testament that foreshadows and helps us to see why Jesus needed to come they are throughout the Old Testament but 2nd Chronicles is one of them it helps us to see why God had to send and why he sent Jesus Christ as Savior. One of the first things we should notice about Second Chronicles 7.14 is it is a conditional promise. The Lord says, if you do this, I will do that. And brothers and sisters, I think we can all be honest with ourselves this morning and say that we could never in and of ourselves truly meet the condition of To humble ourselves, to pray, to see God's face, and to turn from our wicked ways in order to attract God's blessing of hearing and forgiving and healing our sins, if left to ourselves. Left to ourselves, none of us, none of us would ever meet that condition. this whole request of Solomon for God to forgive the bulls and the goats whose blood were were being shed as the basis for God to forgive his people were only foreshadowings of the ultimate blood that was going to be shed to be the basis upon which God would forgive all people and so this verse anticipates This verse anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he would make on the cross that God would be able to forgive us of our sins. This verse contemplates the death of Christ that makes all of this possible. And so as we consider this verse this week and ponder it, let us not leave Christ out of it. We must remember him because he will perfect before God our less than perfect humbling of ourselves and praying and seeking God's face and turning from our wicked ways. We will never do that perfectly. And this is no appeal for us to not make genuine effort. No, we make genuine effort. We avail ourselves of the grace of God, but we do so knowing that at the end of this week, we will not depend on those works, because Scripture says they're filthy rags. Every work of righteousness that we can possibly conjure up this week, that we can, we can produce this week, falls short in and of ourselves. It is only through Jesus Christ that it becomes Acceptable to God so let us make grace motivated efforts this week to obey what God is saying to us coming before him humbling ourselves praying seeking his face turning from our wicked ways but let our confidence be that there is one who has done all of those things on behalf of his people see Jesus not only died for us he lived for us He lived a life that we could never live. And God credits that life to all those who put their trust in Him. Let's pray.